This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The day that the outlaw Jesse James rode through the sleepy town of Ashgrove, Missouri, was the best day of Arizona Donnie Clark's life. She was only an eight-year-old wisp of a girl with a dark mop of hair, but her piercing little eyes scanned the crowd as she pushed through the throng of people to the front. There he was, in all his finery, smooth, clean-shaven cheeks, shrewd eyes mismatching the smile on his lips, bow tie around his neck, and a jaunty hat on top. He approached the crowd and tipped his brim to a group of blushing ladies. Little Ari stared up in awe when James stopped in front of her. He was grinning at the crowd when suddenly his eyes fell on her. Pausing for a wink at the tiny eight-year-old girl, he continued on his way down the main road. As the years passed and little Arizona Donnie Clark became Kate Ma Barker, this memory endured through all of the hardships and struggles she faced. After all, not many people get to meet their heroes. And Jesse James, the infamous Wild West gang leader, was hers. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we're talking about Ma Barker. Was she the infamous matriarch of the Barker Carpus Gang, who terrorized the Midwest with robberies, murders, and kidnappings throughout the early 1900s? Or was she simply a mother of four troublemaking sons, who spent her life looking out for her boys. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. During the early 1930s, the Barker Carpus gang terrorized the Midwest, committing bank robberies and kidnappings. While the official leaders of the gang were Alvin Carpus and brothers Fred and Doc Barker, the FBI believed that the Barker brothers' mother, Kate Barker, better known as Ma, was the real mastermind behind the gang. The extent to which Ma was involved in their crimes is officially unknown. Some say she only provided them with refuge and resources, while others say she profited off her son's crimes, buying expensive clothes and jewelry with the money they stole. The craziest accounts imagine her as the gun-toting matriarch of a large gang of young men. 
the FBI, led by J. Edgar Hoover, believed this version of the truth and hunted down Ma Barker, eventually killing her in a four-hour shootout in 1935. Posthumously, she was painted by the FBI as a public enemy number one and one of the worst and most vile criminals in the history of the United States. This week, we'll delve into the facts and the fiction of Ma Barker's early life, from girlhood to motherhood. We'll explore the psychology of this young mother and discuss her involvement in her son's crimes. Stay tuned for part two as we investigate Ma Barker's later years, including the speculation surrounding the extent of her involvement in her son's crimes. Arizona Donnie Clark, known affectionately as Ari, was born on October 8, 1873, in Ash Grove, Missouri. Her parents, John Clark and Emmeline Eliza Parker Reynolds, were poor working-class people who tried to shelter their daughter from much of the violence that was happening during those outlaw times. Though little Ari was by all means a good child who attended church regularly and sang gospel songs on Sundays, she was a bit different. Unlike other little girls her age, multiple sources report that Ari had a sort of obsession with crime and criminals. Her greatest admiration was the outlaw Jesse James, who Ari reportedly met at age eight when he rode through her town. This must have come as quite a shock to her parents. Indeed. Given the reputation of Missouri and surrounding states as a sort of wild west during the late 1800s and early 1900s, little Ari would have been exposed firsthand to the crimes of legends like Billy the Kid and Butch Cassidy. That's not to mention the common everyday violence that occurred during the frontier justice period, when gunslingers didn't hesitate to take the law into their own hands. Now, proponents of the theory that Ari became a hardened criminal turned to the fact that she was fascinated with crime from a young age as a justification for their claims. However, we can't say that someone who likes crime is destined to become a criminal. Please keep in mind as we delve deeper into the psychology of this girl, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. What we can say is that it's possible that Ari's upbringing provided the perfect recipe to inspire a criminal. She was brought up in a poor family by busy working parents in a small rural town with a Wild West mentality that glorified criminals like Jesse James as heroes. So a young, impressionable girl whose parents aren't paying much attention to her, who may often witness crime firsthand, and who sees that outlaws are admired and comes to admire outlaws herself, could potentially become a criminal. Exactly. The routine activity theory, originated by Lawrence E. Cohen and Marcus Felsen of the University of Illinois in 1979, posits that for a crime to happen, there needs to be three elements in place. Motivation a suitable target, and the absence of guardians. It's possible that little Ari had the motivation to commit a crime, possibly to be like her outlaw heroes, as well as the absence of guardians to stop her from committing a crime. All she needed was a suitable target. Let's keep in mind that there are no reports that Ari Clark committed any crimes in her youth. There's also a theory from Dr. James A. Rivas, which suggests that those who experience crime in their childhood may be more likely to become criminals later in life. Perhaps little Ari didn't find a suitable target until she was older, until she became Ma Barker. Whether she was a budding criminal or not, many sources claim that Ari was a headstrong little girl with a nasty temper. 
quite a few reports also speak of her dark, penetrating eyes. However, there are no photographs of her from that period of time. In fact, some of the only photos available are of her with her husband, George Elias Barker, who she married on September 14, 1892, at the tender age of 18. George was a poor, simple, soft-spoken farm laborer who Ari didn't seem to have much interest in. Photos of him depict a tall, thin, white-haired man with sad eyes and a downturned mouth. Cruder reports suggest that Ari wasn't much of a looker, with short black hair, a round face, and a plump frame as a way of explaining why she settled for someone like George. After their nuptials, the couple moved 40 minutes south of Ash Grove to a similarly small town called Aurora, Missouri. It was around this time that Arizona, or Ari Donnie Clark, took on the married name of Barker and became known as Kate, though it's unclear why she changed her first name. Just a year later, on October 30th, 1893, Kate and George's first son, Herman, was born. Herman was described as a mischievous mama's boy, who grew to be especially sensitive and affectionate with his mother. Though Herman was the eldest, it was actually the youngest child, Freddie, born eight years later on December 12, 1901, who was actually considered to be the mastermind and ringleader of their later crime sprees. Yet, as a child, Freddie was described as a shy observer who spent much of his youth watching his two older brothers commit crimes such as petty theft and burglary. Between Herman and Freddie came Lloyd, born March 16, 1898, and Arthur, a.k.a. Doc, born June 4, 1899. While the majority of the sons favored their mother, Lloyd was the only one of the bunch who idolized his father. He was said to be a dedicated son who valued honor, obedience, and order. Doc was an entirely different story. Said to be dim-witted with a violent temper and brutal nature, Doc was the muscle of the group. After her children were born, Kate Barker simply became known as Ma. Her four sons were an integral part of her identity. With no known career or interests, and a husband who she didn't exactly care for, they became her singular focus. But despite this singular focus from their mother, they all became involved with criminal activity from an early age, contradicting our routine activities theory that presumes the absence of guardians is necessary for crime. If we consider that their father was likely working all the time, and their mother wasn't exactly known for her discipline, it's still possible that they weren't being adequately supervised. Conflicting reports from this period claim that Ma either knew what the boys were up to and purposely turned a blind eye to their exploits, or that she had simply given them free reign to do as they pleased and was completely unaware they'd taken up petty crime. Regardless of whether she knew or not, the boys got into trouble quickly after the family relocated to Webb City, an hour east of Aurora. In 1910, Herman and Lloyd, then only 17 and 12 respectively, organized a gang of other local youths and began committing small burglaries. Though there are no official police reports to support these claims, Herman was said to have been arrested that year for highway robbery in Webb City. Perhaps Ma did know what was going on, and Herman's arrest was what spurred the family to move to Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1915, where they occupied a two-room shack on North Cincinnati Avenue. Unfortunately, if the goal of the move was to escape trouble, the exact opposite occurred. 
trouble had a way of finding the Barker family, wherever they went. Or maybe the Barkers were the ones looking for trouble. We'll get back to what happened in Tulsa after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Tulsa, Oklahoma was where things started to go bad for Ma Barker and her four sons, Herman, Lloyd, Doc, and Freddie. Shortly after the move, on March 5th, 1915, Herman was arrested for highway robbery for the second time, this time in Joplin, Missouri, a two-hour drive northeast of Tulsa. Herman, then 21 years old, was quickly released into the custody of his mother. Meanwhile, the other boys weren't exactly model citizens. While Herman was committing highway robbery, 17-year-old Lloyd, along with 16-year-old Doc and 14-year-old Freddie, were joining a small operation known as the Central Park Gang in Tulsa. They committed petty crimes such as robbery and burglary before escalating to bank raids and automobile theft, though no official arrests were made. Ma had her hands full with her three teenage sons, but the oldest, Herman, would be the first to break her heart. Herman was arrested a third time in 1916 on burglary charges. Some reports say he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Let's take a moment to examine the psychological relationship between parents and their criminal children. An article by Psychology Today suggests that parents of criminals are hardly culpable for the children's crimes. Dr. Stanton E. Samenow says, quote, a child who becomes a criminal is extremely secretive. They'll become increasingly ingenious at concealing many aspects of their criminal lives, end quote. He cites the example of the parents of the Columbine mass murders who had believed their children were just normal teens. Perhaps Ma Barker's only real crime was choosing to see the good in her children. But this doesn't exactly fit for Ma because she definitely possessed some knowledge of her son's crimes, at least after Herman was arrested. It's unconfirmed if she knew about what her sons were up to before Herman's first arrest. Herman's arrest was proof that at least one of her sons was up to no good. So why didn't Ma put a stop to it? She could have at least tried to stop her other sons from going down the same path. Going back to the Psychology Today article, parents can't be fully blamed for their children's crimes, especially if those children are already adults. By the time of Herman's second arrest, he was nearly 23. Lloyd was 18 at the time, and Doc was not far behind. And if we consider the time period, young men were considered adults at a younger age than they are today. So really, all Ma could do was warn her adult sons of the dangers of crime and hope for the best. If Ma did know about her son's criminal activities as children and teens, it's hard not to wonder why she didn't do more when they were younger. According to Dr. Samenow, children are not formless lumps of clay who parents shape. He suggests that children have predispositions toward developing some personality traits, and that studies even suggest there are genetic components to criminality. 
All a parent can do is love their children and try their best to nurture, guide, and educate them. Which may have proved difficult, given that Ma and George Barker were uneducated working-class people who themselves likely grew up with busy, hands-off parents. Helicopter parenting wasn't exactly the status quo back then. Though they certainly loved their children, they likely didn't have the most experience in the nurturing and educating department. So to summarize, Ma likely loved her sons and tried her best to encourage them along the right path, but she was unable to monitor their every move or convince them to give up their life of crime, especially not after they became adults. Ma definitely loved her sons. Some even suggest that Ma wasn't known for her discipline, that she loved her sons so much that she refused to see the faults in them. This became a point of contention between Ma and George. In stark contrast to Ma's unconditional love and encouragement, George was described as an honest man who despised his son's crimes. After Herman was arrested the second time, their marriage was on thin ice. It's possible George blamed Ma for her lax parenting turning their son into a criminal, but the stress of having a child arrested would be difficult for any couple. And the stress was only beginning. Some reports suggest that after his arrest, Herman escaped from prison and fled north to Montana. Back in Tulsa, the third Barker son, Doc, was arrested on July 4, 1918, at age 19 for car theft. He, too, escaped and was believed to have run farther south in Oklahoma. The youngest son, Fred, then 17 years old, was still active with the Central Park gang in Tulsa, and their crimes were escalating to bigger thefts and burglaries. The second oldest Barker son, Lloyd, age 20, was the family's only saving grace. Lloyd had always been more of a follower, not a devoted criminal like his brothers. Perhaps as a way of escaping the life of crime his brothers had set out for him, he honored his father's wishes that his boys lead a good life by enlisting in the army in August 1918. He served as a cook during World War I with the 162nd Depot Brigade. Ma and George must have been overjoyed that at least one of their sons had chosen to live by the law. But any pride Ma and George felt soured in 1921. They received word that Herman had been arrested again, this time in Montana, for burglary and grand larceny charges. Though he was released from a Montana prison in early 1921 at age 28, he was charged with violating his parole after leaving Montana and heading to Minnesota. He probably wouldn't have been arrested for violating his parole in Minnesota if he hadn't committed another burglary, for which he was sent to the Minnesota State Penitentiary. He would spend another four years behind bars. Meanwhile, Doc had been arrested in Muskogee, Oklahoma, in January 1921 for attempted bank robbery, he would serve only six months at Oklahoma State Prison. With two sons in jail and a third, Fred, still leading up a local gang, Lloyd was the only thing that was keeping the Barker family name from being totally sullied. But when Lloyd came home after receiving an honorable discharge from the army, he once again fell under his brother's criminal influence. To Ma and George's great disappointment, Lloyd was arrested for the first time in 1921 at age 23 on vagrancy charges. 
At the time, vagrancy meant he could have been arrested for either loitering, prostitution, drunkenness, or criminal association, though we're not certain what exactly Lloyd did in particular. As for Ma, there are conflicting reports about what she was doing at the time. Some say that Ma was reaping the benefits of her son's burglaries. They suggest that she used the money her son stole to buy expensive clothes and jewelry. However, there's no proof whatsoever to substantiate these claims. More likely, she was trying to help her husband George make a living and worrying after her sons who, despite being adults, were still proving to be a handful. In 1921, Ma would have been 48 years old. It was said that she enjoyed spending her time like any other middle-aged woman, doing jigsaw puzzles and listening to the radio. Though we can imagine that when she received the news in August 1921 that Doc, then age 22, had been arrested for murder, she probably wasn't in the mood to do either. The account goes that Doc and his friend Volney Davis were robbing a woman near a hospital construction site when the night watchman tried to interfere. After a brief struggle, the watchman opened fire. But Doc and Volney returned fire, and the watchman was killed. Though Doc insisted he was innocent, he was sent to Oklahoma State Prison for murder, where he was set to serve a life sentence. This must have certainly taken a toll on Ma, but that wasn't the only tragedy she had to deal with. They say bad news comes in threes. And this time, it did. First, Lloyd was arrested after robbing a mail truck in Baxter Springs, Kansas. He and the other gang members escaped with $7,500. But their happiness was short-lived. Lloyd was caught and sentenced to 25 years in a federal penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. Six months later, in January 1922, the Central Park Gang, which still included Freddie Barker, age 21, was involved in an attempted burglary that resulted in the death of a policeman, Captain Homer R. Spaulding. Thankfully, Freddie wasn't arrested, but one of his gang members died and two others received life sentences. So, as of mid-1922, Ma Barker had three sons in prison and one who had just narrowly avoided a life sentence. Herman wouldn't be released from prison until 1925. Doc was serving a life sentence for murder, but he would be eligible for parole in 10 years in 1932. Lloyd was serving 25 years and unable to get parole until 1938, likely thanks to his criminal family who, in the judge's eyes, would draw him back into crime if he was let out of prison. The youngest Barker son, Freddie, was now the only one who wasn't incarcerated. Around this time, Ma began to write and speak to governors, wardens, policemen, and anyone who would listen, pleading that her boys were innocent, or that they at least didn't deserve such heavy sentences. It's important to note that Herman and Doc were both paroled during the next few years. It's impossible to say if it was Ma's letters that helped their cases or if it was the work of their lawyers. Some reports suggest that the arrests had violated police protocol and were therefore deemed illegal, making them eligible for parole. While some say that Ma was simply doing what any mother would do, helping her children who she believed were being unfairly punished, Others suggest that she was merely a good actress, putting on the distraught mother persona for the police and public, despite full knowledge that her sons were hardened criminals. 
Meanwhile, George Barker was staying out of the whole ordeal. While Ma was insisting on her son's innocence, George had had enough. Tensions between George and Ma had been growing since they first moved to Tulsa, and having three sons in prison was the breaking point for him. He was tired of Ma's endless support for their criminal children. He argued that there were never any consequences for their actions, so they never learned right from wrong. Forgoing any culpability on his part for helping raising criminals, George shunned the family and left. This didn't really matter to Ma, who reports say never really cared for George in the first place. You could say that, to Ma, George was a means to an end. Thanks to George, she got her boys. But that was all he had been good for. If George was expecting Ma to change after he left her, he was mistaken. Ma continued to support her sons in any way possible. Beyond fighting for their release and arguing for their innocence, reports say that she provided safe refuge for them during crime sprees and even housed some affiliated gang members. Yet, while her sons were in prison and George was gone, Ma had little to no income. It's possible that she was using money that had been stolen by her sons during their crimes before they were imprisoned, but we can't be certain. It's clear from this context that Ma was enabling her son's bad behavior in some way or another. A Psychology Today article by Dr. Karen Kaligi defines enabling as lending a hand to help people accomplish things they could not do by themselves and offering help that perpetuates rather than solves a problem. So... A mother who makes excuses for her adult son's criminal behavior and refuses to acknowledge that they are to blame is an enabler. Exactly. And according to Dr. Kaligi, enabling and codependency go hand in hand. She suggests an enabler's self-esteem is often dependent on her ability and willingness to help in inappropriate ways. This help allows her to feel in control of an unmanageable situation. By stepping in to pick up the pieces after her sons were out of jail, Ma took away their motivation to take responsibility for their own actions. Leaving them with little reason to change. So even if there's no concrete evidence that Ma was involved in her son's crimes directly, she indirectly encouraged them by enabling their bad behavior. Exactly. We have to remember that just like any regular mother, her children were her whole world. Now, Ma wasn't just a regular mother. She was an uneducated mother during a time when there were little to no career prospects for women. Her husband had left her, meaning she likely had no disposable income besides what her sons were giving her. This would have encouraged that codependent relationship tenfold and likely discouraged Ma further from steering them away from potentially profitable crime. Ma's sons weren't just her world. They were her whole emotional and financial universe. And unfortunately for Ma's universe, things were about to come crashing down. We'll return to this after a quick break. Now back to the story. In early 1925, Ma Barker had only one son who was still out of prison. Her oldest, Herman, was imprisoned in Minnesota for burglary. Lloyd was serving 25 years for mail theft, and Doc was serving a life sentence for murder. It looked like the youngest son, 24-year-old Freddie, was the family's only hope. But their fortunes were about to change. 
After four years in prison, Herman was released in late 1925 at 32 years old. Afterward, he joined up with the bank-robbing Kimes-Terrell gang, led by Matthew Kimes and Ray Terrell. After Herman's release, he robbed banks with the gang throughout Oklahoma, Missouri, and Texas for most of the year. Meanwhile, Lloyd was serving his male theft sentence as a model prisoner, working in the prison factory, then as an orderly and cook in the tuberculosis ward. Doc was another story. Though there are no official reports from his time at Oklahoma State Prison, we know he was ready to raise hell when he was released. 1926 and 1927 would prove to be difficult years for the Barker family. In 1926, in Winfield, Kansas, just two hours northwest of Tulsa, Freddie, then 25 years old, was arrested for the first time for attempted bank robbery. He was sent to Kansas State Prison, where he would remain until 1931. He had finally sullied his achievement of being the only son of the Barker family who had yet to be imprisoned. According to FBI records, it was during his time in prison that Freddie met Alvin Karpovich, later known as Alvin Karpis. Karpis was born in 1907 to Lithuanian immigrants in Montreal, Canada, who later immigrated to Topeka, Kansas at a young age. He began to get involved in criminal activity at around age 16, resulting in his arrest in 1926 on burglary charges. He was sent to a reformatory in Hutchinson, Kansas, where he remained until his escape in 1929. After his escape, he fled to Chicago, where his parents were living. But his freedom was short-lived, as he was captured and transferred to Kansas State Prison in 1930, where he met Freddie Barker. It's interesting that it seems Carpus and Barker came from similar backgrounds. Both had humble beginnings, a taste for crime. And parents who were enablers. Something to note here is that the FBI records further say, quote, They justified their position in this matter by the fact that it appeared Alvin Carpus was endeavoring to lead a law-abiding life and found employment with various bakers in Chicago, end quote. Though it may have appeared to his parents that he was leading a law-abiding life, that was far from the truth. The reason why he was recaptured the next year was that he was caught trying to steal a car and blow up a safe. Perhaps that's why Carpus fit in so well with the Barker family, because he came from similarly enabling parents. Though they met while in prison, the friendship formed between Freddie and Alvin Carpus, later nicknamed Creepy, would continue for the rest of Freddie Barker's life. And upon their release from prison, their relationship grew from friends to co-conspirators and eventually co-gang leaders. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's discuss what was happening with the rest of the Barker family while Freddie was in prison. In 1927, after Fred had been admitted to Kansas State Prison, things were quickly going downhill for Ma. Now age 54, Ma was obviously distraught over the imprisonment of her baby. Fred had been the only remaining son who had yet to be incarcerated. Ma's only currently free son, Herman, had been on the road robbing banks since his latest release from prison in 1925, and he wasn't coming home anytime soon. 
Unfortunately, the FBI records on Herman Barker from 1926 to 1927 contain mostly illegible and redacted content. So the account of how Herman Barker spent his time during these years is mostly based on secondhand sources. Herman, who had been leading the police all over the South with the Kimes Terrell Gang, was nearly captured in Cheyenne, Wyoming by Deputy Arthur Osborne after he was caught cashing stolen bonds. After waving Herman's car down, Deputy Osborne approached the vehicle and was quickly shot and killed by Herman. Herman fled the scene, heading southeast back towards Tulsa. Unfortunately, he never made it home to Tulsa. As a few weeks after murdering Deputy Osborne, he was apprehended again by police officers in Wichita, Kansas in August 1927. Herman shot a police officer and attempted to flee, but he was critically wounded by another officer. Rather than be captured again by the police, Herman put his gun to his temple and pulled the trigger, ending his life in August 1927 at age 34, surrounded by police and wanted for murder. One report suggests that his very last words were, forgive me, Ma. Unfortunately, we'll never know if Ma did forgive him. Little is known of Ma's reaction to her son's death because with Lloyd, Doc, and Freddie in prison, she was most likely alone at the time of hearing the news. We do know that the years after Herman's death were hard on Ma. After their divorce became official the next year, in 1928, George moved to Joplin, Missouri, where he operated a small filling station and lived a life of solitude. With George finally out of town, Ma was reported to have become loose in her morals, taking to drinking and spending her time with multiple men around Tulsa. According to a study done by Georgia State University, parents who experience the death of a child are likely to have physical symptoms such as poor well-being and a weakened immune system, along with psychological symptoms like anxiety and depression. It's also not uncommon for these parents to take up unhealthy habits, such as smoking and drinking. The study also suggests that mothers are more likely than fathers to display extreme psychological and physical symptoms in relation to their grief. So while it's likely that George was shocked and upset at the death of his firstborn son, Ma was potentially even more devastated and more likely to turn to other unhealthy ways to cope. With three sons in jail and one in the grave, Ma was totally and utterly alone, besides the occasional bedfellow. For most mothers, this situation would be completely debilitating. But if there's anything we've come to understand about Ma, it's that she loved her sons above everything. She still had three boys who needed her, and she would do everything in her power to keep them safe. Ma had two choices. She could either wait until her sons were out of jail and convince them to clean up their acts, or she could lean into their lives of crime, fueled by her rage for the authorities who had, in her eyes, forced her firstborn son to commit suicide. She chose the second option. Over the next few years, the Barker family would embark on a massive crime spree full of kidnappings, murders, and bank heists. Their exploits would secure Ma a spot as public enemy number one. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. 
Next week, we'll pick up right where we left off, with Ma Barker reassembling the puzzle pieces of her family after the tragic death of her eldest son, Herman. Her choices would eventually lead to her untimely death during a four-hour-long FBI shootout. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Margot Perkins and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 